Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. All right. And before we start our official conversation today, we wanted to get in the spirit with our beverage of choice for today, which is the Christmas Ale from Bells, which is in Comstock, Michigan. I'll read the description and then we'll get Beth and Anthony's take on on what they think and how it tastes. Uh, This is a traditional Scotch Ale. It is rich and malty with notes of caramel and a warm finish. It's certain to make any occasion festive, or at least a bit more bearable, which aren't we all kind of looking for a little bit of that? <laughs> I'm during already the Christmas enjoying this season? recording session yeah. more than I was. Oh, right. It, it is making it bearable. Yeah. Or maybe yeah. taking it from bearable to great. Who knows? Um, Beth, what do you think about it? Yeah, it's delicious. Um, it is those things. It's also, it's a 7.5 ABV. It's just a little bit stronger. It gives you that little bit nice toasty Christmas feeling. <laughs> yeah, I'm warming up. I'm warming um, but up. I'm enjoying it. Oh yeah, it's delicious. Uh, I would say it's beginning to taste a lot like Christmas. Absolutely. Way to way to end that one. All right, so let's get into our discussion uh, today. Anthony, we'll go ahead and have you uh, promo it. Well, welcome to episode twenty of Breaking the Surface. And since we're not too far away from Christmas, we thought it might be a good opportunity to talk about Christmas and maybe talk about the dun 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 war on Christmas. <laughs> so a couple of years ago, I started looking into just the history of Christmas. And I discovered quite a few interesting things. And I know the information has been out there for years, but for whatever reason, I just didn't think to look them up. So I'm going to go back uh, approximately 2,000 years. We're going to do a real fast. So uh, <laughs> be a 13 hour history. podcast. That's right. right. Yeah. This is part one of 30. Uh, we'll do kind of a blow through of history and then we'll get to more of the modern discussion of what's often called the War on Christmas. So and I, I was going to read the entire book of Luke. As well, if we have time, yeah, at least one or two. Yeah, yeah right. Beth will. Um, you can sing when we get to the angels part. I'll be drinking uh, all of these beers. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so an interesting thing about Christmas is that early on, um, the followers of Jesus didn't really care that much about when he was born because they didn't celebrate birthdays. This was something that the Romans did. It was seen as kind of this pagan thing, and Christians did not celebrate birthdays, and so there wasn't that much discussion or concern about. And Jesus was born and how they would celebrate his birthday, even if they knew. Uh, but they eventually kind of calculated when they thought it was because both the Jewish people and then the early Christians, they had kind of this tradition that people were born on the same day they died if they were martyrs. Mm. So that had been around for quite some time. So one thing that was known was when Jesus died. So they could backtrack to, or I'm sorry, they were conceived on the day that they died. Mm. So they could backtrack to when they were conceived at nine months approximately, and go for a birth date. So eventually they concluded that it was around December 25th. That seems to have been arrived at independent of what things were happening in Roman culture, et cetera. And I should add, it was almost certainly wrong. (laughs) Uh, So now we fast forward a couple hundred years and you start to see in the two to three hundreds, 
um, in the literature that survives from the early Christians, they were starting to make a bigger deal about the birthday of Jesus. Well, up until that time, Rome had this festival called Saturnalia that started like December 17th, I believe it was, and then would go for up to eight days. And the, the dates kind of changed at the end over time. Uh, but by, say, 100 AD or so, it was ending on December 25th was the final day. It seems to have happened independent of the math that the early Christians were doing. And in fact, by the two or three hundreds, it was mostly Saturnalia was kind of just a, a pop culture holiday, had very little religious significance. So along comes another Roman emperor, and he starts uh, a whole new holiday. And this holiday was meant to unite a Rome that was pretty divided at that time. And it was called, uh, I'll call it Solus Invicti, or Invicti for short. This was Emperor Aurelian. I, I don't know if I'm saying that right or not, but it was an emperor. And uh, it was celebrating like the sun. And this was also December 25th. But this was, say, 300s, or I'm sorry, around 274. This actually seems to be a date chosen post when early Christians had done the math and landed on December 25th. So there was certainly an overlapping of holidays, but it, it seems like Roman culture had their holidays and they liked December 25th for their own reason. The church had their holiday for the birth of Jesus, which was December 25th. And I know there's a lot of literature out there about kind of the pagan origins of Christmas. As best I can tell, it didn't originate from that. They just happened to overlap on those dates. And I get it. It's, it can be messy because... Um, as we'll see as history unfolds, um, things always get messy. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so by the 300s, you've got a lot of Christian writers very comfortable with Jesus, December 25th. Let's make it a holiday, right? Uh, this starts to spread. It gets into Egypt by the 400s, England by the 500s, Scandinavia by the 700s. I'm doing hand motions for you guys. It's mm -hmm. <laughs> like people can see. Yeah. Um, Russia by the 900s. And it's not till the Middle Ages or so that the church, and by this time the Catholic Church, really formally begins to have this focus on Jesus' birth. So the, the church started to make it much more of a high holy day. Meanwhile, the average folk are using this as an opportunity just to party. And uh, it, it became kind of like a Christmas version of trick-or-treat. So what would happen is, because there was a lot of societal division, just in terms of economic realities at that time, Christmas became kind of the holiday where the rich would take care of the poor for a day or a week, whatever. They'd throw them feasts, maybe give them some money. And it, it was a time, I think, to maybe kind of assuage their consciences for what they did the rest of the year. And out of this, um, you started to get this almost Bacchanalian feel with the average person because now you had the food and you had the wine and it was time to party because this was the one time of year that you got it. Uh, the Catholic Church starts the first midnight mass on Christmas. So that's where Christ's mass gets its name in about 1039, 1040. Um, yeah, so once again, as the church is making it more formal, uh, the average person is not commemorating it the same way the church is. I've heard it described uh, as like the Middle Ages Mardi Gras. Uh, like, yeah, yeah, like... probably a good description. <laughs> and it's actually about that time, 12th century or so, that you first start to get criticisms that this must be borrowed from pagan customs because look at all the partying that's going on. And then when the Protestant Reformation comes around, um, there was a couple of Protestant reformers who were had a vested interest in making the Catholic Church look bad. So they piled on on that as well, like, Yep, you guys clearly borrowed this from 
the pagans, but not necessarily because of what the church was doing, but because the average person was not celebrating this as the birthday of Jesus. So, okay, any questions so far? No. Oh, I've, just, I've covered 1,500 years in what, four minutes? <laughs> yeah. I think so. Great. It's impressive. Okay. <laughs> We're doing good. So let's go now to the Puritans. Puritans around the 1640s, they separate from the Church of England. They come over to the United States. One of the things they wanted to separate themselves from was what they saw as all the excess and craziness that was happening. And that included things like Christmas. And they had just no desire to practice Christmas like they had seen it practiced in England. Meanwhile, in England, Oliver Cromwell takes over. This is 1645. And he had vowed to rid, rid England of decadence, and he outlawed all Christian holidays except for Sunday. And they even changed the name of Christmas to Christ Tide, so they wouldn't have to use the word mass because they weren't getting along with the Catholics. Hmm. Um, that gets resurrected in 1660. It was only about 15 years. But England actually stopped Christmas because it was Mardi Gras for Jesus. And the Puritans <laughs> who come over, um, they're not excited about it at all. So in the in what's now the United States, from 1659 to 1681, Christmas was outlawed in Boston. In fact, you could be fined five shillings for, quote, exhibiting Christmas spirit. Mm. So uh, <laughs> The ultimate war on Christmas. Yeah, the wow. ultimate war, right, right. You wear your red stocking outside, Taylor. Um, you get <laughs> fined. I'm just thinking my grandma, she's so full of Christmas spirit, she'd be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She owe at least 20 shillings. Even debtor's person by now, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> Uh, so that's happening one place. On the other hand, you've got John Smith in Jamestown. That's settled by the Anglicans. They were not unhappy with their tradition. So Jamestown is celebrating Christmas. They're still loyal to the Church of England. So even when we go back in the history of this continent, or I'll just say what is now the United States, you, you have two very different streams of tradition starting in the 1600s. Uh, okay, so after the American Revolution, Christmas kind of fades from the scene because people were rejecting anything British at that point. So even the people celebrating Christmas, they, they weren't too fond of doing anything that reminded them of England, so it kind of settled down. So now we're going to fast forward to the 1800s. Unemployment's high, poverty's high, and there's actual riots by the poor where people are getting killed during Christmas. And uh Police, there's a record of policemen dying as they're trying to separate uh, Catholics and Protestants who are fighting over the hmm. uh, recognition or lack thereof of Christmas. So around 1828, um, so let's just broaden that out to mid-1800s. You would have had a lot of social issues in the United States people were wrestling with. So that's slavery, women's rights, corruption, drugs, prostitution, gambling, alcohol. We don't often think of it this way, but Christmas was also a big one. Um, that was causing significant issues among people. Hmm. So in 1828, New York establishes the first professional police force after an especially violent Christmas riot. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So backtrack just a little bit, but early 1800s, Washington Irving, are you familiar with him? Mm -hmm. American writer. He wrote a book called The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon of Ghent. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It, that's short for gent, I do believe. He's a gentleman. And it's just a, a book of stories that features an English squire who invited peasants into his home for the holiday where everybody mingles. And so Irving is trying to recreate kind of this ideal version of what had originally happened in England. This is a time when everybody shares and takes care of each other. You know, it should make you feel warm hearted and peaceful. And then he wrote a book called Diedrich Knickerbocker's History of New York, which I'm sure we've all read. Oh, yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. Love that. Just finished it. And he has a character <laughs> named Sinterklaus who rode through the skies in a horse and a wagon and went down chimneys to deliver presents to children. Hmm. So that's Washington Irving. 
Around that same time, a book for kids comes out called The Children's Friend. Now Santa's horse and wagon becomes a reindeer and a sleigh. Mm -hmm. And around that same time, Charles Dickens writes A Christmas Carol. And so you see uh, in both the United States and in England at that time, kind of resurgence of literature that's trying to create a feel-good, warm feeling of people, but almost entirely around economic realities. Mm -hmm. This would be the time to be taken care of if you'd not been taken care of before. Okay, any comments so far? So even in that resurgence, there's not really as much of a talk about the birth of Christ as the economic conditions of the country. Right, right. Not as if that wasn't happening in churches, but in terms of the general population, it was much more seen as a, a cultural opportunity to be kind. Uh, so as late as 1855 now, Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Anabaptists, they still didn't celebrate Christmas. So that's only 170 years ago. And Episcopalians, Catholics, German churches, they absolutely did. And the Southern Baptists started to not long after the Civil War ended. So it's 1870. You get it first declared as a federal holiday, even though some states had had it before. Also around that time, Thomas Edison, okay, so here's where we start to get into the economic reason for the season. This is going to kind of explode. You're going to see how this works. So Thomas Edison presented the first string of electric Christmas tree lights in 1880. Mm. So to advertise these, Edison and General Electric, which was his company, they sent postcards to families with the strings of lights on the trees just to, hey, you ought to buy these electric lights. So a businessman named Woolworth signs a monopoly agreement with the German manufacturers of glass ornaments. He markets them in the stores and the smaller strings of light sold for five cents and the larger ones for 10 cents, which is where we get the five and 10. Hmm. Uh, And this is Woolworth, as if you're familiar with that chain. Uh, So so in other words, Edison events, um, the Christmas lights, promptly General Electric seals the market on it. And they, it, this mass advertising campaign, convince everyone to buy lights, and uh, they have a monopoly agreement on it. So, yeah, this the capitalistic beginnings mm-hmm. of the holiday are very yeah, clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is the beginning of Christmas as a real cash cow for companies. Uh, it's been, it was interesting to watch the response. I mean, the general population seemed to just enjoy the holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't have to go to church to appreciate the economic feel good sort of thing. It's interesting that um, the Jewish population was much more adverse to it. And I find that interesting because we often talk about the Judeo-Christian background um, of Christianity in particular. So it's closely intertwined, but this was actually at that time, you had quite a bit of pushback from people of the Jewish faith who were not interested in celebrating the birth of a Messiah Mm. because they didn't believe the Messiah was there. And in fact, you have um, people like Irving Berlin who wrote White Christmas, mm-hmm. specifically wrote it to kind of create a longing for the anticipation of snow rather than the anticipation of Jesus, mm. which most of the songs are about at that time. Uh, okay, any questions so far? It's mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we'll, we'll get to some of the more modern stuff. Um, like Starbucks in a cups. Yeah. <laughs> and this will show up somewhat as we talk about I don't want to talk too much about decorations other than first Christmas tree seems to be around 700 or so all kinds of interesting stories about the ways all of the the decorations we use tie in with things. But I want to give you some that I, I find the most interesting. So mistletoe, do you know what mistletoe literally translates as? Mm -mm. It was called the dung twig. (laughs) I don't know why. But uh, yes, people will kiss under the dung twig this Christmas. But (laughs) so 
in England in the Middle Ages, when they started using this, it was used to ward off like evil spirits and witches. In Scandinavia, it was a plant that symbolized peace. It's also a medicine. The Catholic Church had actually banned the use of mistletoe for a long time because it was so deeply intertwined with pagan rites. But eventually it becomes blended into the observation of Christmas because, I mean, if the idea is that Jesus protects people and Jesus heals people, it fits with the imagery that other people were using. Uh, okay, Santa Claus. This might be my favorite story. Don't break my heart here. No, 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 no. <laughs> this won't break your heart. It's just a fascinating story. So St. Nicholas was actually one of the bishops at the Council of Nicaea in 325. And the legend, and, and these appear to generally be true, was that he was a widely admired man. Um, he would stop people from being sold into slavery. He stopped executions. He was very generous, etc. So when he dies, he's, it's kind of this St. Nicholas thing that arises. So that was 325. In 1087, a group of sailors moved his bones to Italy and started a cult around him. <laughs> and this cult eventually kind of morphs in with the Celts who were worshiping Woden, who we get the name Wednesday from. So Woden had this long white beard and rode around in the heavens on a horse. So as the Celts then begin to convert into the Catholic Church, okay, so cult for St. Nicholas blends into Woden worship, blends into Catholicism, and the church basically moves the horse ride through the heavens to December 25th, because December 25th was already there. So now St. Nicholas is the rider, not Woden, and your problem's solved. So in the 1800s, Washington Irving writes another story that features a white-bearded, flying, horse-riding St. Nicholas, but he used his Dutch name, which was Santa Claus. Mm. And then you get the night before Christmas, right, with St. Nick soon coming to the house. You get an illustrator named Thomas Nast, who drew for Harper's Weekly. He moved Santa to the North Pole, gave him a workshop filled with elves and the list of good and bad children. And in fact, during the American Civil War, uh, Nast had mobilized Santa as a representation of American nationalism, often portraying him wearing a blue outfit with stars, distributing gifts to Union soldiers, and referring <laughs> to him as Santa Claus. Okay. Okay, 1931, Coca-Cola insisted that Santa be in a bright Coca-Cola red suit because they started to use him. And that's where you get the current image of Santa in a red suit. So Santa is a Christian bishop from the Council of Nicaea, filtered through Celtic, Celtic gods, Dutch culture, and American cartoons, and brought to you by Coca-Cola. Mm. Wow. All right. That, wow. I feel like that's enough of my whirlwind. No, that's a, that's a good <clears throat> overview of the history. I think one of the things that like immediately jumps out to me about this and why I was interested in talking about the kind of war on Christmas, like what we think about Christmas today is like there's, I think, a belief, especially in a lot of evangelical Christian circles, but not just there. So the religious aspect of the holiday, the celebration of the birth of Christ and what that symbolized in terms of like the redemption of mankind from sin is I don't doubt in, and I recognize how important that aspect of the holiday is for so many people. But when you go through the history of how Christmas became what it is, first of all, in its modern incarnation, as Anthony was just outlining, it's so recent that it became how we know it is. But I think we have a tendency in this country in particular 
to like think the way that things are now have been that way forever and to sort of not spend a lot of time on like actually looking at the history of something, but also like just to be married to the particular religious component of it and to feel proprietary about that component of it as being the only way in which to celebrate Christmas. If you look at the history, it is clearly economically driven. It is clearly socially driven. There are many pagan rituals that overlap with Christianity. And to me, it doesn't diminish the religious importance for people who want to use the holiday to focus on and honor that. But to claim that we are somehow, I think, diminishing the purpose of Christianity or Christmas or the war on Christmas is somehow we're trying to strip all the religious aspects out of the holiday. It's like, no, those non-religious aspects have always been there. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, if they becoming predominant in society, it's just because so many people practice Christmas for reasons that are not religious. So I've always found that like fear about a war on Christmas to be misguided because I, I just feel like you can celebrate it for whatever reasons you want and to act like it is only religiously based just to me ignores the history of how all these different traditions came together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I think in a lot of ways of it, it it's always interesting to see who gets um, offended by these wars on Christmas. So I had mentioned the Starbucks cups that were being switched from Merry Christmas to I think happy holidays. Right. And just how some people, can get all in a tizzy because someone had said happy holidays as opposed to Merry Christmas. And it is really interesting how protective we can get of things when, if you really look at the history, like all those things you'd mentioned, I've celebrated Christmas my entire life and they it often had religious components to it. But I, I was unaware of the history of a lot of these things that you had said. Like, why do we talk about Santa Claus? You know, why do we exchange gifts? Why do we get together with family? All these different things. Um, that I had no idea about. And so I think people, if you're going to become protective of something, you should be pretty well rooted in it and have a deep understanding of the history of it. Because like you said, it seems like it belongs less now to um, just this, this like religious ideology. And there's a lot of ways that we've compromised on the values of Christmas. So even if there's not a religious component that you're practicing yourself, I'm, assuming that most people use it as a day to take stock of relationships and family and to, to take a deep breath and value the things that they remind themselves to value the things that they should be. And I think those are all good things. And so just having an understanding of the history of it, I think is super important. It helps us figure out how do we want to move forward with our own traditions and are they traditions that we're going to continue? Um, or are they ones that we say, well, this doesn't really make a ton of sense. I'm going to implement some of my own. So it's really interesting. The history of it. I found it fascinating because, um, you know, I was even just thinking recently I brought up to Abby. I was like, we're not going to have our future kids like sit on Santa's lap. Right. <laughs> she's like, absolutely not. And I was I just like, I feel like cool. in a Me Too era, we need to get away from yeah. that anyways. Like it's never been like a fun tradition for a lot of kids. Like there were pictures always just like sitting uncomfortably on a strange. Exactly. Lap. Yeah. And it, it's funny how for decades or even longer, that was just a thing, you know, Hey, you go to the mall, you sit on Santa's lap, you're going to hate it but we're going to get a picture <laughs> of, you crying. of you crying. And so it's just really interesting. Some of those things where it's like, can't we just make an adjustment on that and maybe not have our kids sit on Santa's lap, especially if 99% of them seem to hate it. Um, I, I don't know how that relates, but it is interesting moving forward. You know, what are you taking from the holiday and what are you trying to use that day for? I guess. And I wonder, I'm curious if you came across this in your research, Anthony, but like in the small amount of research I've done, which I don't think is nearly as extensive as yours, but you know, you see this sort of pattern over time of the church 
making concessions to the secular celebration of Christmas, either just to be accommodating to the larger society or to even try to capitalize that in some ways. So you mentioned like arriving on December 25th. I think there's a lot of um, historical speculation about when Christ was really born. There seems to be a lot of consensus. It might've been the spring, like the reference to shepherders moving their herds around was probably spring, not December. But you mentioned that overlap with secular holidays. And even if it was sort of independent, it certainly provided a convenient way for the church to be like, hey, you're all sort of doing the celebratory stuff around this day anyways. Maybe we can sort of widen this celebration. And so later on, you have, for example, the tradition of opening presents moving more from Christmas Eve to Christmas morning. And in response to that, and I think I've seen this at Church of Living God, where you guys go, but most churches do not hold Christmas morning services because mm-hmm. they reserve that time for families being at home together, opening presents. And they know that's kind of a family mm-hmm. tradition. So many churches now have switched and do Christmas Eve services, or some might do something later on Christmas day, but you rarely have a church forcing everyone to come on Christmas morning. That's a concession that they made in mm-hmm. response to the holiday, either secular or non-secular, that it sort of acknowledges, even though this is supposed to be the day, the day <laughs> we're celebrating the birth of Christ, We're not going to have a church service on this actual day (laughs) because it's more about the family time and the gifts. So I just I think you have to kind of acknowledge that the church is aware of the more widespread secular celebration of Christmas. You know, that's an interesting point because we don't do a similar thing with Easter, like an Easter Eve and Easter day. But you also don't have a kind of competing um, view of Easter that has permeated society, like you would have a competing view of Christmas. Competing is maybe the wrong word. Because you have like the um, Easter bunny, like yeah. some secular traditions, but you're right. They're all uh, sort of mm-hmm. together, commingled yeah, on, the yeah. same, on the same day. You know, I think of it, Beth, a little bit when I look at the history of the church. One thing the church has done for 2000 years has been pretty comfortable taking known images or events and kind of co-opting them, or I'll say subverting them, or reframing might be the word I'm looking for, reframing them. So for example, you can find pictures in the catacombs of a shepherd holding a sheep over its shoulders, like holding its legs, one hand on each shoulder, it's draped over the back of its neck. That is not an original image from the church. That's from Greek mythology, a very popular image at the time of one of the gods, I forget which one, which was a shepherd. And the Christians basically went, love that image, you just got the wrong person, right? So they, hmm. they reframed it for their use. And you see this happen a lot in particularly Christian iconography and art. Um, so in many other areas, Christians have been very comfortable reframing cultural things for church purposes. And then I would argue, I think cultures often will reframe Christian things for cultural purposes. I was just right? going to mention the Advent calendar, uh-huh. <laughs> which is my favorite. So it's hard to like find the exact... Uh, history of the advent calendar, but there seems to be some consensus. It was in the last couple hundred years. And the popular myth is that it was a Lutheran mother who was so sick of her kids asking when the presents were going to come, when Christmas was going to come, that she created this countdown system for Christmas. So historically, and, and again, that's not, that's just sort of the popular culture take, but Historically, you know, you've been using these advent calendars to cut count down to the birth of Christ. So you have, you know, the first to the 24th and they often have these little windows and you would open them up and there'd be like scripture verses or different sort of religious things within them. Obviously, the advent calendar has been completely commercialized because now you have ones that are like craft beer. There's wine in there. Like Coco Chanel has little luxury trinkets, like anything you can think of. Advent calendars have been commercialized in, in that way. Um, but I think you're right. I think that 
just the intertwining of religion and culture goes back and forth with each other. They borrow from each other. Mm-hmm. And that's why I don't have a problem with, I guess, f- focusing on Christmas in whatever way you want. And if it's for the religious reasons, that's fantastic. And if, and I guess I'm curious what you guys think about the happy holidays versus Merry Christmas thing. But for the same reason, I typically, I'll say either. I'm not offended by either if someone says either one to me. But I don't have a problem saying happy ho- holidays is just a more generally inclusive thing to recognize. There is Hanukkah, there is Kwanzaa, mm-hmm. there's other stuff going on. Um, and to sort of just bring everyone into it instead of having to be like, it has to be a Merry Christmas. I think, yeah, getting getting upset over happy holidays to me is very silly. Like it just... <laughs> I, I guess maybe I pride myself on some level of efficiency. I'm going to cover all the bases. <laughs> yeah, right. Happy holidays. I don't mean anything by it. I don't know where you're coming it. from, so I'm just going <laughs> to yeah. put it out there. <laughs> I celebrate Christmas, but I, I often say happy holidays, just not because I'm not even necessarily wanting to offend, risk offending someone, but because it just makes more sense. If there's multiple holidays within the span of a couple of weeks, I can just say happy holidays. So um, I've always found that that was really interesting, but I, I just quickly was going to jump back to when you talk about borrowing. So mm. borrowing, um, you know, the larger or the broader culture, borrowing from religion and vice versa is that that is always interesting. And I think oftentimes about the Christmas Eve services that happen at my church back home. So we, we all dress up and go to go to church on Christmas Eve and how those are the busiest services. And it's not because um, or I think it often is because you have all these people that are saying, Hey, I kind of owe it to the church or something to, to show up on Christmas Eve, but I'm probably not going to be back again until next year. Mm -hmm. So it is really interesting how you sometimes will get those groups of people who, and maybe they're doing it for their family. Like, well, I don't want to upset mom by not going to church. Right. right? And I think there's a lot of moving parts with that, but it is always interesting how I still think it provides a day of reflection for people, whether they're religious or not to say like, should I kind of stick to the script here and, mm-hmm. and, and at least show my face at church on Christmas Eve? I feel I feel a draw to Christmas Eve for that same reason. I don't attend church regularly anymore, but I, when I'm in town, I sometimes go to the, the church service that you guys' church does, or I've gone to, like, we have a downtown church that is a big Messiah community mm-hmm. sing-along every year, something like that. And I have lots of friends who do not consider themselves to be religious at all, but I don't know if it's, like you're saying, just the communal aspect of the holidays, or they have childhood memories of going to church or all these things that are sort of steeped in our culture and personal traditions. But there are a lot of people who do enjoy going and just spending that reflective time of, I'm always moved by those services too. It doesn't even necessarily have to be specifically believing or embracing the Christian Mm -hmm. belief. There's something hopeful and about the season. I even think back to the idea of like culture also borrowing from the church as it has gone both ways you know, probably one of the most famous phrases associated with the Christmas story is peace on earth. Mm. I think people long for there to be peace on earth. And I think we want peace within our families. So we hope this holiday when we get together, right, we can avoid talking about politics and COVID and, and we'll have peace and we'll enjoy each other's company. And I think a lot of those times of connectivity are a shared longing in all of us to, to find these oasis of hope and joy and peace. I mean, there's all kinds of words associated with Christmas carols, right? We'd all like to experience that. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there is an interesting intertwining in that season of those things. I'm with Taylor. I don't care if people say happy (laughs) holidays. I mean, aren't they really saying happy holy days? Oh, well, now you've okay. Yeah, it seems weird. (laughs) Now you pastored it up. (laughs) (laughs) Dad jokes. I need need to look at the etymology, but I think (laughs) holiday comes from holy day. Yeah. Uh, Even when people say Xmas, uh, early Christians used an X. 
It's just I was gonna say I was gonna mention thing. that it's the yeah. Greek letter X, yep. the chi, and it means Christ. Right, so it really right. is Christmas. It's just yeah. a shortened version <laughs> of it. And people get so mad about that one because they think you're Xing out the Christ, and it's like no, it's just how the just, Greeks yeah. said Christ. I should also work. note yeah. I I don't care if the local courthouse has a Christ or not. Mm. Um, I know that's come up. I haven't seen it as often recently, but honestly, this is the way it works in the United States. The way it is, if you allow a Christ, then you allow a menorah. Then you allow something for Kwanzaa. You you name it. You allow one. You allow them all. And frankly, I think everybody who's who has a faith investment in a religious system, it it ought to cause a little bit of discomfort. Like, okay, so I'm a Christian because I think Christianity is true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I think it stands out. That in a, in essence, you'd have the uh, the government law become the the leveling of the playing field. Right. And I would think actually people of all faiths would go, wait a minute. I happen to believe what I believe because I happen to think it offers something that the others don't. Um, I'm more comfortable with there being nothing there. Mm -hmm. Like I can put whatever I want to on my own lawn. We could put it on our church lawn. I would just assume that the government not worry about all of the issues that come with um, you open one door, you open all the doors. I think that's the way it works. I think that gets way too complicated. It's interesting because I think if you're from a certain background, you get so used to the own symbolism of your beliefs or culture mm-hmm. that when you run into others, it seems startling and, and sometimes threatening to people. But like, I'm thinking even in downtown Traverse City, we've always had a downtown Christmas tree, like forever. And we still have one. It's right in the middle of the town. You have to like drive your car around it if you want to go through town. Kind of dangerous. Um, yeah. It's, <laughs> we'll talk about that separately. I have questions for the city about this continued tradition. Um, Because I almost run over someone every year. But this year, they also have a giant lit menorah, um, which Mm -hmm. is the first time I've ever seen this downtown at a different intersection. And I don't have any... I'm not Jewish, but I'm glad to see a move towards increased inclusivity. But I will just be honest. I drove on the corner one day and I was like, what is that? (laughs) Just because I hadn't seen Mm -hmm. it. I'm not used to seeing the menorah as much in my own iconography. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of had that moment. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. And then I thought it was cool. But I could see if you're not Jewish or you had even fear fears about your own religion being erased or something or eroded, that that might feel threatening to you in some way. But I try to like remind myself, you're only centered in your experience. And for so many Jewish or other people of faith to constantly seek cross or nativity mm-hmm. scenes or Christmas trees, even it's like, they've become used to it because it's part of the larger culture. Mm-hmm. But for the reasons that you said, Anthony, I would almost prefer, especially if it's public or government based, that it be neutral than to think that somehow um, it's okay to sort of emphasize one religious version of the holiday over another. The Christmas theory does seem pretty neutral anymore. I think over time, virtually everybody, uh, no mm-hmm. matter whether they're people of faith or they're not people of faith and multiple faiths, most people have Christmas trees. They just see it as a generic. It's a thing you put lights on. Or I mean, burn it, down if it's outside of Fox News. Yeah. <laughs> right. Versus like a crèche. Right. Would sure. be much more specific symbol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can I ask you guys a follow-up question then? You've said you don't mind the happy holidays thing. This idea of the war on Christmas, I think this became, I mean, I at least remember in my, my time that it was a big thing about Bill O'Reilly. Like Bill O'Reilly really pushed this on Fox news, I think in like mm-hmm. the nineties and the two thousands and really got people stirred up about it. And if you look at like any kind of national polling data from like legitimate polling outlets, it's evangelical Christians the most who are fearful of the war on Christmas. And I'm just curious what you guys think about it. I guess one, if you have any 
thoughts about if there is a real attempt to remove the religious aspects of the holiday, if you've seen that at all or have concerns about that at all. And then two, I guess how you feel about people celebrating Christmas in a non-religious oriented way. I don't, I don't really necessarily think that I've felt like my idea of Christmas is being threatened in any serious way. Um, I'm trying to think of like parallel things that maybe I've seen play out. Maybe some of it is um, as we start to police each other's language a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So we talk about like the types of words that just aren't acceptable to use anymore that oftentimes were used frequently in the past. Um, Is that, I don't know, is this kind of one of those same things of like Christmas, happy holidays. There's some people seeking that out. Um, I don't feel threatened by that. Like I could just as easily kind of change. I'm not compromising my beliefs um, at its root, I could change, you know, the way I say something. If, if someone really was honest with me and said, you know, Hey, Merry Christmas to me. Um, I do find it a little bit offensive. I would just say happy holidays to them. I'm not trying to cause a kerfuffle. Um, it's not going to change for me how I celebrate Christmas and how I view Christmas itself. So no, I don't think any of these things that are happening on the periphery necessarily like make me fear that Christmas is under attack. I think we should have a bell we ring every time you say kerfuffle. (laughs) It would be used one time so far. (laughs) Have you had people in your church, Anthony, like ask you about this or share concerns with you? I'm just curious what your experience has been with this, like as a pastor, this Um, war on Christmas idea. It hasn't come up much. No. Hmm. Um, And yeah. So in terms of my personal conversations with people, I, I rarely had, people complain. I mean, I can't remember a specific incident. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's happened, Beth, but it's hasn't happened enough that it's stuck in my head. Um, I do think social media has kind of allowed this platform where, <laughs> as we've seen, people who are easily offended about anything mm-hmm. go front and center and Twitter gets a hold of it. And suddenly something that 20 years ago, nobody would have cared about becomes a national story. Um, I, I'm with Taylor. I don't really expect. Uh, okay. So because I'm a Christian, I celebrate Christmas a particular way. I have a particular focus. Like I, I enjoy, I decorate my house with lights and all kinds of stuff. And I enjoy revisiting what these things mean in terms of their symbolism. We do a Christmas Eve thing at our church, right? Jesus is the reason for the season. I don't have any expectation that people who don't share my faith will approach Christmas that way. Mm. I mean, if, if they would like to focus on Jesus at Christmas, more power to them, uh, I'll help enable that. Uh, (laughs) But why would I expect that someone who does not view Jesus the same way I do would bring the same kind of um, the weight to the symbolisms or celebrate the same way I do? I just don't have an expectation of that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't care what Starbucks does. Mm-hmm. I don't care if I go to a store and they've told their employees to say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. They could say bah humbug for all I care. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I just don't care. Yeah. Um, it's nice because it makes me feel warm and comfortable, right? Like, Hey, everybody's joining in with something that's meaningful to us, which it tends to be a good reminder to me about what it looks like to try to join in meaningfully with others mm. um, in, in ways that I can. Um, just to be part of the community that I live in. And so in some ways it just feels nice to, to feel that community sense. But at the end of the day, Beth, if tomorrow uh, every Christmas light comes down and nobody sells anything and there's a, the United States decides 
This is not a holiday, you name it. It's not going to change what I do for Christmas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and in fact, I don't think, I mean, honestly, I don't think it would bother me that much. I, mm. I celebrate Christmas in the way that is meaningful to me and is meaningful to my family and is meaningful to our church. Other people can do with it what they want. Yeah. I think one of the, I think one of the things I find most challenging about Christmas or having discussion about Christmas specifically with Christians is I think the only time when some Christians and just based on what you two have said, this is clearly not all Christians, but when some, I feel like we represent <laughs> a, a really important. Yeah. I I'm think so too. The other half. <laughs> I guess. And maybe again, it's a, just, um, it's a, it's a result of media outlets like Fox News amplifying this war on Christmas thing that maybe most people actually really don't care about or fearful of or believe in. But I think for people who do, it's like this insistence that the only meaning of Christmas is this thing. And as we mm. just talked about, there are all the, these other historical and economic things that have come into play. And to me, it encapsulates what I find one of the most challenging things about some aspects of Christianity, which is that I find so much of the faith and the stories in the Bible to be really beautiful. Mm -hmm. I also find them often to be metaphorical. <laughs> and I think there's a real challenge in some parts of the church to be comfortable with mystery and nuance and multiple things impacting the story or the tradition that you love so much. And so I think there's a fear of like saying, no, Jesus wasn't literally born on December 25th. <laughs> like some parts of the Christian church are just afraid to even say that. They're like, no, this is his birthday. And it's like, well, you can't historically prove that. And also, why does it matter? Like, why can't it just be a beautiful symbolic birthday and like celebrate what he meant to the world and to Christian culture? There's so much of that in Christianity. That's like the, the Genesis story. Like it's for me, it's I'm just sharing like what is my main challenge with Christianity is the emphasis on literalism, the emphasis on a white Jesus or December 25th. They're like these details that I don't actually think matter are important to the core of the faith. But there's a there's a part of Christianity. There's a group or demographic of Christianity that just insists on this literalism that to me as someone who loves science and history, it puts me off of it. Cause I'm like, no, I can't go there with you. I can't agree. And now we're fighting about something stupid, but two, it robs the discussion of what I think the larger emphasis should be, which is the message of what the Bible is telling the message of Christ. It becomes bogged down in these details that aren't important that we spend all of our time arguing about. I thought this was only going to be a one part episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can start to wrap up, but that's kind of where I'm at. That this is like my, my, my general frustration with Christianity as a whole, but especially Christmas like illustrates that. What if I, I use reframe before I'm going to use that word again. Yeah. Um, I, what if I would argue that instead of saying Christmas has, you said something along the lines of Christmas has always been multiple things. What if I would say that Christmas was originally a, recognition of the birth of Christ or the term Christ mass doesn't come in, you know, till around a thousand, but like many holidays, Easter would be another example. Um, over time, even those who did not view Jesus the same way Christians do saw something in the spirit of the holiday that was, that they wanted to participate in. So Christmas is love, giving, peace, joy, hope, the things we mentioned. Um, Easter, the idea of new life, um, mm -hmm. you know, that type of thing that they, they see something and they go, okay, I'm, I don't attach the same meaning to the person, in this case, the person of Jesus, 
but I like the kind of what you're saying. I like the emphasis. I like what it's trying to talk about. And so we'll try to find a way to enter in from our own experiences and become a part of that. I totally agree with you that that kind of two tracking has happened for an awful long time. Um, and let, I mean, those seems like if people want a holiday where they focus on love and peace and hope and joy that I'm two thumbs up for that. Um, I, so I don't find that as, um, it doesn't bother me. I, I feel like we're all in some ways longing for the same things, even if we're, even if we are uh, celebrating or seeking to fulfill those longings in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel it's like just that hard, sentence like, came out awkward. <laughs> no, I think it's okay. good. I mean, just it's hard because even early on, like the birth of, of Christmas, like you were talking about in the first couple of hundred years after Jesus's death, all of these secular celebrations that were going on concurrently around it, particularly usually around the winter solstice, had a similar idea. Like the solstice was being celebrated because it marked the end of the darkest part mm -hmm. of the year. From darkness to light. And now yep. we're going to emerge into longer days and light and um health and vibrance and all those things. So, which is a very similar message to me of what I think Christ embodies in Christmas. It, it, so it reminds me of what Lewis <laughs> and Tolkien would talk about because both of them were huge fans of mythology, mm -hmm. right? And they felt like um, a lot of what you saw in the mythological symbols and everything that went with it was kind of paving the way for uh, what they called Jesus was true myth or myth become fact. Mm. Um, or they saw all of those other stories as participating in a grand story. And so they had no problem like really enjoying all of the imagery and symbolism and things. They just felt like it was, they were all pointing in a particular direction. Mm -hmm. So there is a way in which I think we expect to see some overlap because I think humanity in a broad sense shares similar longings um, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I'm just thinking as we, as I think we probably are wrapping up is this idea of, you know, this war on Christmas and that maybe there's some of these kind of dueling ideologies. For me, Christmas is often about trying to avoid some of those fights because I want to try to see people <laughs> in their best light. And um, if there are these two groups, so there's a group that is just protecting uh, Christmas and their idea of what Christmas is and should be. And then there's this other group that's trying to steal um, from other people what what Christmas is, is that if I, if I can paint both of them, I guess, in more of a positive light. And so if there's these people who are trying to, in some way, like reframe what Christmas is to them, then I'm just going to try to assume that they're seeking some type of equal opportunity to like celebrate something good. Like they want everybody to be able to celebrate. And maybe that, that means that they're calling out some of the economics of Christmas and, and the things that aren't so honorable about Christmas. And then the people that are protecting Christmas are these people that just have these wonderful experiences with what that day means to them. And so if in some weird way they're protecting of Christmas is them wishing that other people could have the same great experience as them. then maybe I can also see them in this positive light because for me, Christmas has been such a huge deal since I was a kid. I mean, we're talking like 10, 15 days leading up to Christmas. I am just like shaking with excitement. <laughs> I used to regularly like throw up Christmas morning because I was so excited to see all my family and to get all the presents and everything. And it's Look always it now, just been, Beth. yeah, I'm getting yeah. really worked up. <laughs> And, um, you saw the, you walked by the Christmas tree. Christmas I mean, put my vomit. presents under there. Yeah. Um, and it's meant oftentimes it's meant a lot of gifts. Like my grandparents were, we didn't grow up with a ton in my immediate family, but my grandparents were always the support system. And so when I would ask for something you'd say, well, maybe we'll see Christmas if you can maybe get that. And then you end up with like eight of the things that you asked for, you know, earlier. 
And so there was always those positive memories, but my family stressed connection with one another, making sure and prioritizing that we are going to meet up. Even if this is only one of two or three times that you might see each other all year, we're going to get together and it's not going to be surface level stuff. I'm going to share a little tradition that my grandparents started and it's in one sense, just totally miserable. But in the other way, it's like, even after they <laughs> pass away, we're definitely going to continue it because it's just so them. But every Christmas Eve after church, we go meet at their house and then my family's huge. So we oftentimes will have like 30 people in the house. We all put our name in twice into a basket. And then we draw names out, whichever family member we get, we have to share like a fun memory we have or something about them that we appreciate. And it is hilarious because we always complain, like, really, we got to do this again. And my <laughs> grandma sits down in her little section of the couch and she's like, yep, shut up. We're doing this. And by the end, like people are just crying because they're sharing these things that they otherwise never would have taken the time to share. Mm. And so that more than the gifts like sticks out to me as just a here's an uncle that I only see maybe in the summer and then for Christmas. And I just had to conjure up like something that I appreciate about this person and really dig deep and think like, wow, that is a special person that even though I don't see him very often, I can tell him what I appreciate about him. And then that's just like something that's really stuck out tradition wise. And so I think that when I look at people that are protecting Christmas or, or other people that are maybe coming for it, and I don't actually mean that, but coming for Christmas, we're all kind of wanting it to be a good experience and a good day, a day of appreciating like what we have and who we have, I guess. You know, one of the interesting things about that, I think of, there's a, a writer in the new Testament who said, one of the things Jesus came to do was to tear down walls between people and without giving a sermon or a devotional. I think <laughs> we see at Christmas people embracing that idea. It would be lovely to live in a world in which the walls of division could really fall down between people and we could be mm -hmm. connected as we ought to be. Um, can I, do you care if I get kind of a final word on this? With oh the yeah. Story? I do have something to yes. Yeah. Go ahead, Beth. Okay. Then I'll, then we'll let you have the final word. I think, you know, I think a recurring theme of our discussions on the podcast is just trying to remind people how often other people's lived experiences are different than yours and to try to keep that perspective in mind and practice grace and kindness and compassion to each other. And I think as you were talking, Taylor, it just reminded me of, I think a really good reason to not insist that everyone share your same approach to Christmas is that Christmas is a traumatic time for a lot of people. Um, I think the more you have an expectation of Christmas having to be a particular way, the more painful it can be for people when it is not that way for them. So whether it's the economic expectation of wanting to provide lots of presents under the tree for your kids and not being able to afford it. I've been there myself. I've, you know, I've been there as a kid, but I've also been there as an adult seeing friends struggling to, to, you know, give their kids presents and wanting them to have that magical experience. And then like, you know, when you start to tell kids, well, Santa's the reason that you got a PlayStation five yeah. and another kid is like, well, do I not matter to Santa? Must Why didn't I get a list. PlayStation yeah. five? Yeah. I must be bad or and there's so many people who have lost people at the holidays who have came up in abusive families and always wanted that happy Christmas experience and didn't have it. Um, people who have been rejected by their families, suicides go up around Christmas. So I think all of that is not to try to bring this down, but just to remind people that if you have a happy, wonderful Christmas tradition, that's so wonderful and to be celebrated, but many people have not been able to have that. And so Christmas can be a really painful time. And for some people, they choose not to 
commemorate the season at all because it's too painful and they'd rather do their own sort of self-care traditions to kind of deal with that grief and trauma. And so all of that for me just is, again, the recurring podcast theme of just remember other people's experiences with Christmas might not be the same as yours and maybe have some grace for that. Great, great point. You know, one thing we started doing at church a while ago was on Christmas day, we had a, like a brunch Mm -hmm. and anybody who needed somebody to hang out with on Christmas day, just show up. We eat, we play games there. It was totally informal. We would get 50 to 60 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them had family in the area and were doing things, but for many Christmas day was a lonely day. And, uh, Sheila and I first thought about that. When we moved up here without any family. We're like, what are we going to do on, the, on these holidays? And, uh, yeah, I think there's practical ways, things like that, just hosting things for people that give, uh, give people access to friendship. So I, I want to say a final thing about the war on Christmas, because what I just read to you about the history of Christmas a couple of years ago was the first time I really dug into that. And something that stuck out to me as I read it was, I felt like the war on Christmas was probably more inside my own heart than it was anything culturally. And that is, what do I genuinely believe Christmas is about and how ought I then to celebrate it? And I remember talking with my wife and my kids like, and, and I said to them, I'd like us to get away from getting presents. Mm-hmm. Not because we don't have the money and not because I don't like giving things to you, but I, and I don't suggest this so that the two of you or anybody in our audience feels this way. This was just my own kind of journey with processing this was I don't want to participate in the materialistic aspect of it. Um, and how do I get away from that? I was even thinking of a couple of weeks ago when all the shipping industry stories were in the news and are like, you're not going to have your presents for Christmas. We won't have Christmas. I kept seeing these memes. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. That's not, if that's really mm. like, oh, okay, if that's what Christmas is, then we're talking about a completely different Christmas than how it started. Mm-hmm. And so starting probably three years ago, maybe four years ago, our family has really taken a different approach and we, we invest money into meals together and, driving to see each other and that type of thing, just because um, for us, it's not because I'm not trying to strike a blow against the consumerism of Christmas. It was more just like a reorientation. Um, I do want Christmas to be uh, because I am a Christian and I'm a pastor. I obviously keep going back to Jesus as the reason for the season. But I also think part of what was intended to be brought to the world was like reconciliation of people. Um, peace between people, love, you know, forgiveness, um, learning how to be human, <laughs> um, learning how to do life together well, and trying to see Christmas as a time to really refocus on, on that. And I'll be honest, we've kind of enjoyed it. Like instead of a flurry of messages starting in mid-November about <laughs> what do you want? Where will I get it? Do they already have this? Like all of that. It's more just like, we might go shop in the day or two after Christmas when everything's on sale. That's kind of fun to go plunder places. <laughs> but honestly, I think our whole family has kind of enjoyed the relaxation of getting out of that part. We just try to get together and enjoy each other's company and play games and do puzzles and, and try to learn how to love each other. Well, it feels like a good way to pass on the legacy of the first Christmas. Well, with that, maybe we could say Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to our listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode.